Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the In Context and Culture podcast. So glad that you are joining us once again to walk through the book of Revelation with us. We hope that it's been an encouragement to you. Uh, shared a few words of someone that had been listening to us um, that has shared our podcast with her work colleagues. So, Danny, thank you for listening to the podcast. We are glad it's been a blessing to you and to your husband. Um, Dalton. They, there you go. <laughs> and uh, so thank you for coming to my, you said they came to something. Your ordination. Yeah. Came to my well, ordination. Danny did. This Dalton makes did. me feel, were they married yet? No. Oh, okay. Well, congrats on getting married since I've seen you last. <laughs> and they have a kid now, Sawyer. I give a little shout out to the little guy. Nice. That means, Sawyer, you are bound to listen to the podcast every week. No. Um, hey, so glad you're listening. Uh, Danny, Dalton, and whoever else is listening, uh, the three other people. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but we're glad you are listening. We're in the book of Revelation still. We just actually, for the last seven weeks, went through the seven churches, um, uh, the letter to the seven churches, uh, in the book of Revelation in chapters two and three. Now we're finally in chapter four. And in chapter four, we see, as we talked about last week, the throne room of heaven. So we're just going to go ahead and start right off the bat. Um, Corey, do you want to go ahead and just read chapter four? We're reading the whole chapter. So if you want to read along with us, chapter four, if you want to read later, chapter four. All right. I'm reading for the English Standard Version. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So as we walk through this passage together, uh, you probably noticed that when we walked through the seven churches, we had a specific order in which we walked through them. And that was the order in which they are um, 
uh, structure. And that was, um, we're talking about the characterization of Christ. We're talking about the commendation to each church, the critique to each church, the command to each church, and the call to conquer for the people of each church. Well, now that we're in chapter four, we're outside of the letters to the churches. And so Corey and I just talked for a minute beforehand, hey, how we might structure our conversation in chapter four today. The, the way that we're going to do that is we're going to walk through the text really three times the first time through, we're going to notice um, how the uh, um, uh, the throne room is described by um, uh, John as he's kind of tr- transported into the throne room of heaven. And then uh, so we'll look at the thunder, we'll look at the rumblings, uh, and then we'll look at, okay, wh- how do we see God here? Um, What are some things that tell us about God himself, about um, the fact that he is a covenant keeping God, that he's a holy God, those kinds of things. And then lastly, we'll talk about um, a few um, controversies that are often had in this chapter um, with, okay, is this talking about the rapture? Is this talking about this or that? So we want you to hold on with us. We'll walk through the text together. Uh, It will be hard to separate these entirely. So you might see um, us talk about one thing and come back to it more later. So Corey, let's just walk through the text. Um, a couple of things that we need to notice as it describes where John is, how he got there, um, and what's going on. What does he see? So the first thing I just want to say, and I'm pulling this from a commentary because I think this is super great, is um, one thing it is now John, after writing to these seven churches, looks up and he sees an open door in heaven, which we can make some comments about. Um, He hears a first voice speaking to him like a trumpet, and the voice says, come up here, and I will show you what must soon take place. So, so far in the book of Revelation, we've seen this phrase, um, basically, uh, like in chapter one, for example, chapter one says, uh, I'm writing to you the things that must soon take place. Um, He says the time is near in chapter one. Um, Now he uses a similar phrase, but he says, what must take place after this. And so there's once again, a phrase that kind of gives us an idea of, okay, what's to come. Um, George Ladd writes this, and I thought it was great. He says, the coming of God's kingdom begins. This revelation will include the destruction of the powers of evil of Satan and of death. But before these evil powers are destroyed, they will break forth in a final desperate effort to frustrate the purposes of God by destroying the people of God. However, the terrible conflict that takes place on earth between the church and the demonic powers embodied in an apostate civilization, that is Rome in the first century and the Antichrist at the end, are in reality expressions and historical form of a fearful conflict in the spiritual world between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. So this begins what will continue throughout the rest of the book to see pictures of the powerful working of God throughout history as Satan, as um, powerful as he may be, um, tries to thwart the plans of God and persecute the people of God. Um, And I think it's just fitting that in chapter four, we see, okay, this is our God. This is the powerful God of the universe who's sitting on the throne ultimately, right? So as you look through it, what are some things that you think are really important um, as John describes the scene of being in heaven? He's transported here to heaven where God is, what are some things that you think are important? Well, one of the things is just the, the different ways that John describes his appearance, uh, because you notice he doesn't, he doesn't give you anything uh, 
um, that could be fashioned into what some would use to make an idol. Like there, there's no, there's no physical description given of the one seated on the throne. There's just this appearance of one seated on the throne. And so what do you mean by that? Is, is that like, he doesn't anthropomorphize God. Like he doesn't talk about his nose, right, his yeah. head, his eyes, his right. ears here, though. We talked about the son of man in chapter one. Now there's no descriptions like that. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is just, this is just describing the glory of God because you have this Jasper and carnelian color, which is both reddish and Brown. And then you also have this emerald around, around the throne. And so you've got a couple of different things here, but the, the whole picture is just the glory of God here in heaven that, that this God is unlike any other there, there's, there's nothing that he can be compared to, uh, no created thing that, that is worthy of description or comparing him to because he is completely unique. He is completely set apart. Um, and so like that, that describes the glory of God and the holiness of God. But, but to me, the, the real impactful thing here is, is you've got this, even though it has the appearance of an emerald, which is a green color, it describes he describes it as a rainbow around the throne. Well, we know from the Old Testament, the rainbow was set in the sky uh, as a sign of the covenant of Noah, that he would never destroy the earth by a flood again. And so, so looking here, you, you have this rainbow, which is, again, a reminder of the fact that he is a covenant God and, and we are his covenant people. And so he, he is a promise keeper. He's faithful always, and he's a covenant keeping God. And so I, I love this picture that there's no, there's no man type description of who God is because he is so glorious. There's none to compare. Hmm. I think it's important even distinguishing while we can't separate the persons of the Trinity in their entirety, we have here the son of man described as, um, as a person right? Mm -hmm. Whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose mouth, out of his mouth comes a sword, right? So very anthropomorphic. But when we talk about God, the father on the throne, um, there's no descriptions um, that would be person-like. It's exalted language of something that we can't fathom, right? I mean, truly. Um, so uh, I think one thing that also is important in setting the scene here is you have um, things that are around the throne, um, uh, you're, you, so the elders around the throne, you have, um, uh, before the throne, um, uh, 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 seven torches of fire, sorry, you have from the throne flashes of lightning rumblings and pearls of yeah. thunder, right? So basically he's having you think of the throne as the central Peace is the wrong word, but the, the center of what's central happening point, in heaven, yeah. central point of heaven, right? And everything is evolving around the throne, right? So think of the sun and how the planets evolve around the sun, right? The sun is That central. would be revolve, not evolve. Revolve. <laughs> Thank you. Revolving <laughs> around the sun. Yeah. I'm not trying to get into evolutionary language here. Uh, revolving <laughs> around the sun. Uh, sun is central, right? Sun is what gives light to everything else around it. So that's very important, I think. One of the things that I want to point out uh, is the flashes of lightning and rumblings, rumblings and uh, peals of thunder. So this is uh, a way in which we see God's divine presence um, uh, illustrated, uh, experienced in the Old Testament, especially. 
um, in the book of Exodus and Exodus 19, if I think uh, correctly on Mount Sinai, um, uh, the Lord descends upon Mount Sinai and it's like thundering and lightning and smoke everywhere. And that's where Moses is said to like, come up. Uh, and Moses is, and I think God says, and bring the people of God up. And Moses is like, no, you said that you'd break against the people of God. And he said, okay, then bring Aaron up or whatever. Um, and so uh, the people stood in fear. In fact, they said, Moses, you go talk to him. We don't want to talk to him, right? We're afraid. And what's so interesting, and I don't have the time to probably go back to Exodus chapter 20, is um, um, basically they say, God, please take the smoke smoke or away or whatever. And he says, no, that the fear of God, he says, fear not. Uh, I'm basically keeping uh, the, the smoke before you and the, the thing that is causing you fear um, so that you may not sin against me, right? So the fear of God was to be ever before them, not so that they would keep themselves away from God, but that it would keep themselves on their face before God, right? Yeah. And so this is how John is acting, I think, as he sees the centrality of the throne of God in the throne room, and he is awestruck with before the throne or from the throne, there's thunders and lightnings and it's God, right? Yeah. What else? Well, I, th I think it's important too, to remember that th this is the way he must be described because he is indescribable and, and God is spirit. I mean, Christ took on flesh. The second person of the Trinity took on flesh, but God, the father, again, you can't completely separate them because they're, they're the same essence, but, but God is spirit. I mean, it clearly says that in Scripture that God is spirit, and so we shouldn't be looking for some kind of physical description of him anyway. Yeah. Don't you take great comfort in like, so Paul, after um, he writes his letter to the Romans, and he gets through some of the most dense um, theology in the first 11 chapters, chapters 10 and 11, I'm still waiting to fully understand those two chapters, right, as they're working out through the book of Revelation, but um, chapter 11 ends with, after this dense theological work given to the, the, the Roman church, he says this, Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, who is known as mind, who has been his counselor, who could give him a gift that he might be repaid for from him, through him and to him are all things for him to be glory forever. Amen. Basically, he's like, I'm done. Here's poetry just describing the miraculous, marvelous God that is and has done all that has come in the first 11 chapters of the book of Revelation. I mean, just like yeah. he basically gives up and just goes to poetry to describe God. It's so cool. Yeah. Anything else that's important to describe? You have 24 elders. I think we're going to hold off on um, explaining all of that. But as it pertains to the 24 elders and the, um, uh, the creatures around the throne, um, as difficult as they may be to fully understand in our own mind, once again, um, what's their point in heaven? Right. Like that. I think that is the point is what their point is in heaven. Yeah. What, what are they doing? Right. They're worshiping God. They're right? worshiping, Both of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. So they exist for the glory of God. Ultimately, yeah. like we're going to talk about who we might think they are, but they ultimately exist just to consistently, constantly sing praise to God. Yeah. And you're right. That is the point of the whole, the whole chapter here. And we get so caught up, like so many people get so caught up in trying to identify like who they are. They miss the glorious one seated on the throne. Mm. And it's so funny because like the whole picture is he is central. And these are all create things that have been created that just are pointing themselves, you know, pointing one another and pointing us to the one on the throne. Now, this is just speculation here, but like, I wonder if that, 
is part of the fallenness of man that just, you know, seeks the creature rather than the creator, you know, yeah. like, like, like thinks, thinks that the create, the created is more important than the creator. Uh, it seeks again. to find, to figure out the descriptions of the creatures rather yeah. than the indescribable God. Yeah. 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 So that's good. That's a good thought. Yeah. I had a professor one time, um, he was talking about revelation four and he said, Hey, when you worship with the saints on Sunday mornings, you are only joining the heavenly chorus in heaven. Yeah. You get to take part of the praise um, that's already going on in the throne room. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I uh, whenever I preach this passage here at this church, um, I, I said to people, whenever they came in, I said, you're not the first one that praised God today. And, mm. and if you don't praise God, whenever we're here, like you're the one that misses out. He doesn't cease to give, to get praise. Uh, he's continually praised, but we're the ones that miss out if we don't partake in that. So that's a great word. Yeah. Anything else descriptive? We've got um, uh, a crystal sea that, uh, so we've got around the throne, the elders, we've got from the throne, lightning, thunder, rumblings. And then we've got before the throne, uh, a couple things. We've got a before the throne, seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, we have a sea of glass. Do you want to just kind of pursue that a little bit? Well, I think the, um, the seven torches, we, we discussed back in chapter one, even about what, um, what that represents the seven spirits of God, seven being the number of completeness would be the Holy spirit. But in the, in the old Testament and the temple and the tabernacle, uh, you had this, uh, seven, seven branched, uh, candle, which would now, be, I guess, is that called the menorah mm -hmm. now, or is it, yeah. or is the menorah 12? I don't know. But anyway, uh, you had this uh, lampstand. I said, in yes, that. I, maybe I don't know. <laughs> That's horrible. I, yeah, I don't but know. But in the Old Testament, you did have this lampstand that was seven branched in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle. And remember, Hebrews tells us that the, those things in the temple, in the tabernacle were just shadows of the heavenly temple. Um, the, the, heaven itself. And so that lampstand in the Old Testament is representative of the spirit. So I believe here you see, you know, in the first part, you've got the, the John saying the, the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet referring to Christ, like he's the one that called John to heaven. So you've got Christ there. You've got uh, God the Father seated on the throne, and then you've got the Holy Spirit. So you've got a Trinitarian view of who God is in this one passage. Um, Which is not the first time that this has happened, because that happens right at the no. beginning. In fact, the other time that the seven spirits of God are mentioned in chapter one, which is in the context of listing the Trinity already, right? So um, if you have trouble understanding the Trinity, uh, I get it, but you shouldn't have trouble seeing that the Trinity is true, right? I mean, it's yeah. even in Revelation, a confusing book, it's pretty clear that our God is a Trinitarian God. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so there's so many cults, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses being one of them that want to pull the, all the references to the Trinity out of the Bible. You can't pull them all out because sure. like even here you have all three representative, even though they don't name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like these are all representative of those. And so, um, so yeah, it, 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 Trin Trinity is all over scripture. Really um, important moment. Um, Wikipedia menorah yes. was correct. It's seven. Yeah, it's or seven. 12. <laughs> Sorry, okay, it's seven. Good. 
<laughs> yeah. I said menorah and I was so confident. And then you said 12 and I was like, uh, I need to wake up. I need, I need to Google that. So obviously Wikipedia is not the best resource, but I Googled and that's the first thing that popped up. So, oh yeah. Super authoritative. Seven, seven, seven links. <laughs> Um, I, I think it's, uh, so I think you should keep talking about the sea of glass, but before you do, um, I think it's helpful to remind ourselves that a lot of what we find in the Reve- in the book of revelation is descriptive language, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and revelation once again is ri- written much like the apocaly- apocalyptic literature of its time, um, which uses symbolic, um, uh, pictures to, uh, reveal and point to real, literal truths. Um, and I, I don't think, uh, so, so you might say that and someone's like, okay, symbolic, like, um, that means you don't take things literally in the book of revelation. Well, quite the contrary, right. Um, while I don't believe Jesus's eyes are literally lit on fire, I believe something greater than that, rather that he sees and knows all there's nothing hidden from his sight, um, that he can, uh, judge with the word and the sword of his mouth. It's not just like a dangling sword out, out of his mouth. Right. So these symbolic pictures point to even greater realities. And, um, just as a reminder, sometimes revelation reminds you that you're supposed to take pictures symbolically. It says the seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, right? That's not the first time it does that. Um, in Revelation 19, it says there's seven eyes and the seven eyes are seven hills. Um, and I think it's Revelation 19. Don't quote me on that. Um, it says basically that the beast is a city. Am I right? Is it the beast that's a city? Something is a city. Gosh, oh. I can't remember. Right. Um, and then you've got chapter one that says the lampstands are the churches, the uh, stars are the angels. So this happens multiple times throughout Revelation. Um, it's intended to clear up some things uh, every once in a while with this apocaly- within this apocalyptic literature. I would even argue um, that when we look at different pictures that are being um, uh, that are being seen, the word seen is 55 times in the book of Revelation or 455, I think something like that. I saw, I saw, I saw. Um, That puts, I believe, the impetus on the person to argue that something should be taken quite literally, right? So when we come across these symbols, we are to look at what it first might say clearly about itself, like these are this, or in the Old Testament for what it might be referring to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. so do you want me to go on with the C? Yeah, go on. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is interesting because it says before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, considering the fact that you have this lampstand uh, or these seven torches um, here, some people look at this sea of crystal and think uh, a body of water. Um, they think this large expanse before uh, God that is clear, um, that it is like a sea of glass, if you will. And so, you know, most people would think sea, body of water. Um, but I, I think since we have this seven torches here, which was this lampstand, uh, it's more appropriate to see some more furnishings in the temple. Now, Part of the reason people take that as a body of water is if you go over to, um, gosh, where is it in Revelation? There's one place where it says that the, they've come through the sea and it's a sea mingled uh, with fire and they sing the song of Moses. Can't remember where, what chapter that's in. Uh, but 15, anyway, two through three. Okay. 
And so some people take it that being the symbolic sea of like the Red Sea, where we have come through it uh, and had victory on the other side. But in the Old Testament, in the, in the tabernacle, or no, in the temple, there was a large basin that was called a sea um, with the, the, that they would use for uh, cleansing. And I mean, this was not a small thing. It was, I think it would hold 18,000 gallons of water. And so it was massive in the temple. And if you think about all of the sacrifices that would have to be made and the washings that would have to be done, um, you would need something that large. I mean, my, I've got a pool at my house and my pool holds 30,000 gallons. And so like, it's almost two thirds the size of my swimming pool. So it was a large, it was a large basin of water that was there. And um, I think, I think that is something more like what you're seeing here in the throne room of heaven is this large sea that would, that would imply um, purity and cleansing there uh, before the throne that only those who are pure and clean can stand before the throne. So help me out with something then. Um, and this is not me bringing up a different approach because there's different approaches to this, right? I, th- I think you have the best one um, uh, not to um, make you feel, I don't know, <laughs> a certain way of pat yourself on the back. There's a phrase I was looking for, but uh, so this is the throne room of God. Does the throne room of God always look the same? And here's my question, because in Revelation 21, when someone comes across a passage that says there's no more sea anymore in the new heavens, and the new earth, what does that mean? I, I well, guess yeah, what I, I'm I, saying is, is possibly if, if we're talking about purity, what is there to be purified in the new heavens and new earth? What is there that has not been pure, made pure? Yeah, I don't think that just like in the Old Testament, the sea did not always talk about the same thing. Like there was a literal Red Sea, and then there was a thing called a basin or the basin in the in the temple that was called a sea. And so, like, I don't think it's always in Revelation. It's the same thing because, as I mentioned, that one in a passage in um, in chapter fifteen, where they have come through, and it's it's going to be symbolic of of going through the waters of judgment and coming through on the other side victorious because of Christ. And so I don't, I don't think necessarily they always have to be the same things. Yeah. I think C is um, not to pursue this topic too long, but I think the, the phrase C um, and it's uh, the way that um, a C is seen throughout the old and new testaments is kind of interesting, right? I mean, you've got uh, this C crystal sea of glass You've got um, the sea uh, referred to in Revelation 15, and you've got no sea in Revelation 21. Um, you've got the the idea in your mind, um, if you're familiar with, you know, ancient Near Eastern literature and with um, uh, Jewish rabbinic writings and stuff, oftentimes uh, um, Israelite and Jewish people would have thought that um, uh, that, that uh what was hidden in the sea. That's where the demons resided and the sea was a very scary place. And so um, to say that there's no more sea is kind of unique, you know, in the end of revelation yeah. 21. Um, so uh, there's more to be said about that, but um, here's my question in the new heavens and new earth, will there be a literal physical sea? I think <laughs> I know it's not very definitive, no, no, but like no, if it's a so, new heaven and a new earth, like I, I, I think again, what you're talking about is, is that in the old Testament, the sea is representative of chaos. Yes. And so there won't be that kind of sea, but uh, so, so, I do so think, here's why I asked that. I know you love John Piper and he was on a yeah. panel one time talking about this 
And, and what did he say? He said something in his John Piper way that made it funny because it's John Piper. And uh, someone was like, John, will there be seas in heaven? And he goes, no. And they say, well, what about bodies of water? He's like, yeah, they'll, they'll be like lakes. <laughs> you know, it was just like, okay. <laughs> you know, but he was like definitive about it. You know, uh, it was just, it was really unique. Uh, I think, I think it was at cross conference that I went to. So I don't mean to get off subject, but he's like, there won't be a sea. But I like water. So, There'll be lakes, you know, that kind of thing. So, I don't know. so, so I wonder if he thinks there's going to be a Pangea coming back together or something. I don't know. You know, man, I don't know. So, um, <laughs> anything we else we need to talk about description wise? I think we've talked about everything. I think it's time to maybe talk about what this tells us about God. Yeah. Okay. So as we begin um, again, looking through this passage, um, we talked about the description of throne being central. Um, and arguing that that's what we should talk about most. Well, let's talk about it. Um, what does this passage actually tell us about the one who is seated on the throne? So Corey, you had a great outline. You've preached this passage. Um, you put out three great points. Um, and they were, this first begins to tell us about the holiness of God. Um, is that, am, I, am I saying that in the right order? Holiness is last. No, the, this the first begins to tell us about the glory of God. Sorry. Then the covenant of God or the the God who makes covenants with his people. And then, um, then the holiness of God, as we see the songs made, uh, sung unto him. So help me through that. Where do you see the holiness of God here? Maybe, um, we'll walk through together. Well, I think, I think one, which we've already touched on is this flashes of lightning and the rumblings of, of thunder and peals of thunder and, and all of that, because when you think in the old Testament about, uh, that scene you were talking about at Sinai and God said, you need told Moses, you got to set up boundaries around, mm-hmm. around the mountain, because if they break through and touch the mountain, they'll die. Like right. this is like, there's no slap on the hand back up now. Like it's, if you come into the presence of God in a sinful way, you'll be struck dead. Mm-hmm. And so so that, that sets God apart. It, it sets him apart as holy and righteous uh, there. And so I think you see that, but you also have the proclamation of holiness. I mean, continually, day after day after day, unceasingly, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Yeah. Um, there's, there's reverence and holiness that they exalt all the time. Yeah. So the word holy, the, the best word we can probably get to describe it and thinking about purity and impurity. So he is pure and righteous and just and good. Um, um, but the word holy almost kind of is a term that basically means unlike anyone or anything else set apart, right? So when you're saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty, right? You're basically saying, uh, the God who is set apart and is set apartness is set apart. And that set apartness that has been set apart is set apart. He is that holy, right? Mm. He is that different from humanity. He is that exalted above humanity. He is that pure in relationship in relationship with the impurity of humanity. Um, there is no one who has his mind. There is no one who can fathom, um, uh, uh his power even, uh, that's the holiness of our God. Yeah. And then you, you mentioned covenant keeping because something interesting on here, of course, we've got all these appearances of Jasper and Carnelian, but you said, um, uh, I think in your message, and you're maybe going to talk about this around the throne. You mentioned this earlier. There was a throne or around the throne. There was a rainbow that had a, the appearance of emerald. Um, what did rainbows 
mean in the Old Testament and what maybe is the significance of a rainbow being around the throne here in the throne room? Well, it's just that, again, that God keeps covenant. Uh, covenant or the rainbow was a symbol of the covenant that God made with Noah. And so he, he is a he's a faithful God. He will not break his word. And he has given people his word that he will deliver them out of this system, out of this fallen world system. And so like we can be assured that he will do that. It's not a matter of, is God going to come through for me? Like mm -hmm. that's never a question. It's yeah. always true that God is going to come through and keep his covenant to his people. That's good. Anything else you want to mention about, um, uh, we talked about this description of the throne room. We've talked to, we described the one who is on the throne. Anything else you want to mention before we get to uh, maybe some controversies that are had within this passage? Let's hop, let's hop um, right in. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you no, 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 you, okay. you go for it. So a few things here that I think are just worth talking about. Um, uh, first and foremost, we have right at the beginning here. Um, After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. I will show you what must soon take place after this. Here's what I'm going to do, Corey. I want you to tell me why, if you're okay with this, uh, you put me on the spot a while back. I want to put you on the spot and then you can put me on the spot about the elders. Is that okay? Yeah. Or, and sure. we can work together. So tell me why um, I shouldn't take this passage. Although other people might take different you know, different things in Revelation, we can love and respect them, and we can have charitable conversations with people whom we disagree with. Good godly men and women land everywhere in the book of Revelation. Um, tell me why I shouldn't take this trumpet to be the trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 5 that bids the people of God um, to heaven with him. Tell me why. I shouldn't take what must soon take place after this as a future event. That is the rapture of the church upon the trumpet that this here in chapter four means that the church is no more here and they will not experience anything else for seven years. They'll be out in heaven with the Lord during a time of tribulation. And that this is talking about the rapture of the church. Okay. Well, a couple, a couple reasons why I don't think it's the rapture of the church is number one, he says, all he all he's doing here with the trumpet, he said, he said, I heard a voice that was like a trumpet. He doesn't say it was a trumpet. He said, it's like a trumpet, which then if you go back to chapter one, you'll see that that's the same description he used as he heard a voice like a trumpet. And then he turned to see the son of man. And so like, this is just a description of Jesus being the one calling him to heaven. And also in that, keep going. Hold on. Yeah. All, all that, all that you've got is just John. Um, you don't have, you don't have a picture of the rest of the church um, coming with him. There's never any mention in this, even chapter four and chapter five, which is all one scene of the throne room. You don't have a picture of the whole church there. It's literally just John. Um, and so those are the, those are the two primary reasons that I would say that this is not a rapture of the church. Um, but I would also go on and say that probably the majority of the rest of revelation, if the church is raptured at this point would be irrelevant, it would be irrelevant to a church that's going through difficulty. 
right? Like, like why in the world would, would God continue to give them all of these pictures if they're going to be out of here anyway? Yeah. Right. So what you have, what you have in chapter one is uh, I, John, to the seven churches um, who are my partners in the tribulation, they're already experiencing tribulation. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what is John's message to them? Uh, conquer, continue to remain faithful and you will receive the crown of life. Right? right. And then how awkward would it be in the next word after he's basically saying hear and heed the message. See ya. And they yeah. basically get raptured. Right. So um, while logically we have to work that out because we still think, you know, this applies to the future and stuff. This does apply ultimately originally to its intended audience. And so mm-hmm. um, he's getting them to look at the throne room in heaven, not for some future event they'll, that they'll be immediately escaped from for the rest of the book. I mean, even the end of the book of Revelation is basically here and heed everything that's been said for the things that are right. must soon take place. He says that again, right? Yeah. The end of the book. So it's not as if at chapter three, they're good and they have to stop and they just have to read the beginning of chapter four and they're like, oh, well, the rest doesn't matter, right? Um they're called they're they're being called to hear and heed for the things that will take place up until Christ's return with their eyes on Christ's return. Um, I would also say, uh, I don't know everything you said because I had to step away there for a minute, but just because there's a trumpet blast doesn't mean it's the trumpet blast of first Thessalonians chapter four, right? Because there's trumpet blasts all throughout the book of revelation. Right. Right. I would also add that the uh, trumpet blast in first Thessalonians four is the same trumpet blast, regardless if you think it's the rapture or not, I'm talking fast, is the same trumpet blast in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection. Um, to me, we don't got resurrection for a while. Um, we don't have resurrection until uh, Revelation chapter um, 20, 21, right? Um, so the resurrection of the bodies has not yet taken place, I, I would argue, pretty clearly uh, here, right? Yeah, right? So if sure. you're going to argue that this is a rapture, you got to point me to where you can find, okay, is the resurrection of the bodies already taken place? Because that doesn't happen for a while in the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Because you can't separate rapture and resurrection bodies; those are the same event. Um, right. And I think everybody basically argues that. Um, so, sorry, um, talked fast there. And what you said, I'm sure, was great. I just had to step away. Um, <laughs> angels. Awesome. Sorry, you missed it. Yeah, I'm sure. It, yeah, and you know, I might have repeated something you said. Um, uh, angels, elders. Let's talk about that, right? So um, here's uh, the second point of can you know disagreement amongst brothers and sisters in the faith. Um, You've got the one who sits in the throne, um, who is majestic, that is God the Father. And then you've got around the throne, 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. So there's a few different thoughts on who these elders are. Um, uh, One of the thoughts on who the elders are, uh, is basically it's representative of the entire church that has been raptured, which we of course have already argued that that's probably not the case because we don't think the church has yet has yet to be raptured. Um, that that will take that 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 it will be a while until the return of Christ when that takes place. Um, uh, secondly, there's the thought that you've got in the um, 24 elders on the thrones. You've got. 12 of those 24 that represent um, the um, uh, Old Testament people of God, Israel, um, that is the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, And then you've got uh, in the New Testament, um, as the promises of God go forward out into the world, the 12 apostles, right, the foundations of the church. Um, I think this is actually a pretty good view. A lot of people have held this view um, 
Uh, if you hear someone preach about it, that's typically what you're going to hear, you know, about eight times out of 10. Um, people think that um, the 24 is re representative of the church at large being the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, a good point for this uh, argument is Revelation chapter 21 that basically says, um, uh, on in the New Jerusalem, the gates will be named the 12 tribes of Israel and the foundation will be named the 12 apostles, right? So um, I think we would argue re regardless of where you stand on the elders that that means there's unity amongst the church, Jews and Gentiles for eternity. Um, the place that God dwells in for eternity, Ephesians chapter two will be amongst in his church, right? The living stones, his people. Um, but I don't think either one of us actually take it to be that exactly. Instead, um, the best interpretation, um, uh, in our own opinion, is that the elders could possibly be best understood as angelic beings. Corey, do you want to begin speaking on that, or do you want me to go ahead and take it? Well, no, you said I get to put you on the spot, so I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. So, um, so, like... If they're angelic beings, why is it that it says that they wear white garments and wear crowns? Because those are some of the things that were promised to the churches if they would conquer. That's a great question. They like white. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> now, why white is a symbol for purity? Um, uh, just because um, they're wearing white, right, does not mean that the church will also wear white. Right. So um, I, I'm not opposed to the church wearing white. In fact, we see the church wearing white exactly as you said in Revelation chapter seven. But in that same chapter um, where the uh, church is wearing white robes, the angels are, or sorry, the elders are actually distinguished from the church in the same chapter. Right. So if you're using yeah. that argument, I, I would use the same chapter and basically argue that they're definitely distinguished. So yeah. um, he, here's a few reasons why I don't we don't believe um to the best of our knowledge, the elders to be anything other than, um, or to be the church. Basically that two options is the church or is it angels, right? Um, here's why chapter five, you've got the elders. Um, my text is turned on me. Um, and in, uh, starting in verse eight, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. This is still in the throne room, holding a harp, golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the stroll and to open its seals for you are slain and by your blood, you ransom people for God. So they're not talking about themselves here. They're rather talking about the people that have been ransomed by God. Um, in uh, the same section of scripture, verse eight, I already mentioned that they are holding the golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I think it's in chapter seven, um, where an angelic function um, is to, uh, um, uh, I think it's in chapter seven. I'm trying to look in my commentary here. Uh, yeah. In chapter uh, seven, uh, you see, no, sorry, chapter eight, there we go, um, that uh, an angel is explicitly designated um, by uh, as one who um, joins the four creatures and offers bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, right? So they're not the saints themselves. They rather um, offer the prayers before the Lord to the Lord of the saints. Um, uh, chapter eight, verse three, that's what I just mentioned. Chapter seven, uh, 13 and 14, if I can turn there. 
which is the white garments that are worn by those that have been sealed, the redeemed. Um, verses 13 and 14, it says, Then one of the elders addressed me, that's John, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? So the elders are asking about the people in white robes. So there's two groups of people in white robes. Um, verse 14, I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So the elder is being identified here as separate from the redeemed people of God, um, uh, that have been saved, right? He's asking about the people that have been saved, the church, um, in chapter 14, uh, verse three, you've got, I uh, mentioned uh, they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders, that is the people of God um, are singing it before the elders. Then in chapter 19 verses one and four, you've got um, uh, the, the throne of God mentioned again, and the elders are standing separate in worship than the people of God. Right. And so consistently over and over and over, you have um, a distinguishable group, even when put next to, the people of God, that is the elders. Yeah. So there's not, there's not difficulty in calling them angels. Really. There's not difficulty in the Bible and calling or in revelation calling them angels. There's only difficulty in calling them, um, uh, you know, the people of God because they're always distinguishable from them. So, yeah. And I, and I don't think you can just say, well, this group's wearing this. So this has to mean the same thing because sure, sure. If, if you go over to uh, revelation nine, it says, the locusts are wearing crowns upon their heads. Well, we surely wouldn't identify those locusts with the, with the people of God either. And so, um, but I I also don't think it's a problem, even if we call them angels to say that they would be representative of the church or the, or the people of God, because we even talked about um, during the seven churches that those angels were angelic beings uh, representing the churches before God and also delivering messages to the church as well. So I think you can almost kind of have a both and a little bit there. Yeah. So, so just because they're angelic beings does not mean they don't represent the church. Yeah. Yeah. Because the angels are quote unquote representing the church. If you take the position that we've taken um, that there's an angel representing each church that the letters being written to in chapters two and three, uh, I would say uh, the one difficulty that I just, I want to admit, you know, difficulties in the passage um, is not in uh, saying that they're angels, but in wondering why they have crowns, um, especially since in chapters two and three, one thing that's mentioned of the people of God who conquer uh, is that they will receive the crown of life. Now we know that the crown of life is referring to basically eternal life with the Lord, um, but um, it, it is just kind of Oh, well, they've got crowns. Like that's, that's something that the people of God are looking forward to, right? Um, why are angels wearing crowns? I don't have an answer for that. Do you, do you have any comments on that? Well, just the, just the fact that it could symbolize authority, um, sure. you know, like the heavenly host uh, would be authoritative. Uh, Christ would be leading the heavenly host. And, and I think in the same way that you have um, in the old Testament, you have elders there, Moses gave out, authority to them to help rule the people uh, in the same way God could be delegating his authority in some measure to the angels to carry out um, what he wants them to do as messengers. Yeah, George Ladd, I'm going to quote him again, because at the end of this podcast, I want to talk about giving away a George Ladd commentary. Here's what he says, just to your point. 
So we may conclude that the 24 elders are a company of angels who serve as a sort of heavenly counterpart to the elders in Israel who are pictured as helping execute the divine rule. Exactly what you just said. That's good. Anything else we need to mention? Um, at all? Or yeah, before we land the plane. Thing? Yeah. Any, okay. Anything that you want to mention before we land the plane? Yeah, I think it's important here that we that we talk about those four living creatures for just a moment. Oh, good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, because um, I think there is a lot of speculation on who those four living creatures are. Um, but I think as, as we see these four living creatures, um, we could go back to the Old Testament and Ezekiel. I'm not sure where in Ezekiel. I think it's chapter two, maybe maybe later. Uh, but anyway, Ezekiel has a vision of four living creatures as well that are, it's very similar, except for the fact that in Ezekiel, instead of each one having a different appearance, they all have four faces, but those four faces correlate to what you see here. Um, and so if, uh, it, then if you go over into chapter 10 of Ezekiel, he actually names what those are, and those are cherubim, which are, mm -hmm. again, are angelic beings, and, and all throughout the Old Testament, cherubim are extremely important because they, um, cherubim, if you remember on the Ark of the Covenant, which, um, which is the thing that held the Ten Commandments, um, Moses' staff, and several other things, um, on top of that was called the mercy seat. And whenever they made the mercy seat, they fashioned these angelic beings that were the cherubim. And so um, you have, you have the idea that they're the cherubim are guarding the, the presence of God. And so you have the very same thing here in the book of revelation, this cherubim that guards the presence of God. And you might remember also whenever Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, there was a flaming sword that swung in every direction and there was a cherubim there again. And so you have this idea of this is the presence of God and they are guarding the presence of God. And so I think that's, who we see here are these cherubim around the throne. Once again, there's, there's other places in, um, in Ezekiel that talk about the cherubim that have the eyes that they, they see, uh, they don't have omnipotence like God does, but they're constantly looking throughout all of creation on, mm -hmm. on how they are to carry out, uh, his will, um, cherubim, um, symbolize the, the presence of God leaving the temple in Ezekiel. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it always has to do with the presence and the protection of God's presence there. Yeah, I think it's just important to, you know, remind ourselves that when we have the tabernacle, um, we have a picture of, in the sense, the, the heavenly throne room, the presence of God with the people of God. And so when you've got these cherubim, as you already mentioned, a part of the mercy seat, right? What are they a part of right now? Well, they're a part of the seat of mercy, right? Yeah. Um, the Bible basically speaks of God as merciful God. And mm -hmm. so they are still at the mercy seat, but the, but the true full seat of the merciful God of the universe. Yeah. And so they're still, um, they're, uh, they're not in statue form. They're in yeah, genuine right. real form. Yeah. Um, they're not pointing to what is true. They are what is true in the heavenly throne room. That's good. 
Yeah. And I think that's just, that's worth talking about because throughout history you have, um, you know, different interpretations of what, um, the creatures were, I mean, even as early as Irenaeus in the second century and Jerome in the fourth century, you know, they would have thought, okay, creatures are possibly representative of different, you know, books of the Bible or things like that. And um, really, if you look back in the Old Testament, and I'm not saying that I'm smarter than Irenaeus or, you know, whatever, but uh, you have so much that's brought from the Old Testament, so much that is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, so much that is um, uh, physical, tangible, but temporary realities that actually exist in the throne room of heaven. Um, so no, I think that's, I think that's great. Uh, the cherubim mentioned Ezekiel 10 and uh, even seraphim uh, were a little bit different. Um, of course, mentioned in Isaiah six. So. And I guess just lastly, I would say again, just to remind people, it's not as important to know the identity as to see the action of what they're doing. Uh, they're worshiping God and, and ascribing to him worth and power and glory. And they're, they're really declaring that he, he is the creator of all things. And so therefore we all owe him that glory and honor and blessing. Um, and unfortunately we as mankind uh, don't offer that the way we should. And thankfully there is that mercy seat. So we need to be praising and worshiping God at all times. Yeah. And uh, in that throne room, uh, you know, that John was transported to and the seat of mercy on which God, the father dwells. Um, we won't necessarily, our, our, our long lasting hope that we eventually look forward to is not to be transported there, but the fact that he's actually coming to us, right? The dwelling yeah. place of God will be with man, right? Um, hey, uh, Corey, would you pray for us? And, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and close this because I want to mention this book that I wanted to talk about. Is that all right? Sure. Yeah, you bet. Father, we just thank you um, for giving us this revelation, this understanding of your throne room. And God, we pray that you would give us a heart that would cry out to you and worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Father, you are worthy of all of our worship. You're worthy of the worship of the entire universe. And Father, I'm so thankful that you are restoring and that you're going to you're gonna bring all of that to fruition where it will all glorify you in perfect unity. And Father, I pray that as we are living as um, believers in this fallenness, God, that we would be lighthouses to your glory. Lord, that we would project that to all that we know. And God, that you would receive honor and blessing and glory for it. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Once again, thank you for uh, following along, listening to our podcast. We've received some new ratings on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Um, share with us how you enjoyed the podcast. We'd love to just share with others uh, what um, and how this podcast has benefited you. Hey, we did a giveaway. Um, not long ago, we gave away a copy to uh, Matthew, uh, a copy of G.K. Beale's um, Revelation, a shorter commentary. Uh, one of our favorites is G.K. Beale's. I uh, want to also talk about George Ladd's commentary on the book of Revelation. Uh, I've benefited a lot from George Ladd's work. You've mentioned that you really like George Ladd. The Gospel of the Kingdom is a great book by George Ladd. So is this is this your commentary you have? 
It looks different. Like, Mine looks different than yours. Yeah, yours looks the same, hip but. and new. Um, but whatever it will look like, it'll be from Amazon, and we'd love to give it to you. So um, this week uh, or next week, uh, um, next week for us, this week for you guys, uh, we'll post something that you can share uh, so that you can share our podcast with your friends. And in doing so, uh, you might uh, win this book. You'll be entered in the chance to win the George Eldon Ladd commentary on the book of Revelation. So thank you so much for listening. Share this podcast with your friends. Make sure to leave us a rate rating or review, and we hope you have a great week.